Hi, I'm Louise. And I'm John. And you're listening to the DCIF podcast, Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community. We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members. Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change. This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans. Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk, where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum. Fantastic. Let's get on with the show. A very warm welcome, everyone, to the second episode of the DCIF's new podcast series. Um, Today, we are talking about engagement. What is the point of it and how do you do it effectively? It feels like the million dollar question among DC pension schemes at the moment, doesn't it? Um, Especially when it comes to things like regulatory reporting, doesn't it, John? There's so much going on. Yeah, and it's going to be a really interesting session because there's a huge amount of interest, not only just from you know more engaged members or trustees or committees, but also from the regulatory perspective, as you say. So it'll be really interesting to hear Siobhan's views on what engagement is being done, what asset managers can do to actually make investors aware of what we're actually doing, because there's lots of great stuff being done by asset managers. The challenge has actually been articulating that to the wider audience. So interesting to hear Siobhan's views on that and how that can be improved going forward. Definitely. Yeah. So today we are speaking to Siobhan Cleary, who is an engagement specialist at Bailey Gifford. I travelled up to Edinburgh and we were able to do it in person, which was really exciting, wasn't it? We we um, recorded in your office, didn't we, John? Yeah. And I was a bit quiet because I was feeling a bit rotten. I'd had a bug. So I'm really, <laughs> I'm really glad um, that I'm feeling a bit more human today anyway. Um, so John did quite a lot of the talking on this one. Sorry, John. <laughs> Not at all. It was a really interesting topic to talk about and it was a great session. Yeah. So um, let's hand over to Siobhan. So Siobhan, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So obviously it's been a really uncertain year so far and I'd love to just hear a little bit about how you are responding as an engagement specialist. Thank you very much. I think the the sort of core thing that people think about and certainly that we think about is going back to basics and remembering that at the end of the day, you're managing assets on behalf of clients and you need to prioritize client interests at all times. So when we're thinking about engagement in these uncertain times, you're trying to think about what is in the best interest of the client in terms of the conversations you're having and the assets that you're managing. And sometimes in some geographies that becomes a little bit more challenging than others. But the focus of the thinking and certainly the engagement is always client interests and how do we give effect to that in the most meaningful way. Yeah. Something I'm really interested in is that difficult balance that you have to strike as managing assets between, okay, so big geopolitical events are happening. How do you stay cool and appear to respond? And obviously you are responding whilst also continuing to look to the long term. I imagine that must be quite a difficult balance to strike as investors. Yeah, and possibly a little bit more challenging at the moment than it may have been a few years ago. Obviously, for different investors, they'll take different approaches based on their investment style, their investment philosophy, the types of assets that they hold, um, which maybe we can get into a little bit later. We're long-term investors, so our starting philosophy is we're looking for the long term, which means trying to look through cycles. 
I guess the challenge with geopolitical events is trying to think through to what extent those fundamentally alter the long-term investment thesis that you might have. So our preference is never to react to short-term events specifically, but it will cause us in some instances to think, well, does that mean the sort of assumptions we made about why this company is a great company to hold over the long term, has that changed? And that's really how we're going to try to think about it. But in general, we try not to react to a news headline. We try to think about what that means for what we're doing. And I guess we've kind of jumped straight into geopolitical uncertainty and all those sorts of issues. But taking a step back a bit, you're an engagement expert, and I'd love to hear a bit about how you think engagement ultimately What's the goal? And I know you've come to Bailey Gifford from a different background. I'd love to hear about your experiences there and how that kind of plays into how you, what you bring into Bailey Gifford now in terms of how you engage. Yeah, I think one of the big changes for me, and this was a, this a big realization for me coming into Bailey Gifford from outside. I think as an outsider, you always think engagement is about, you know, you're looking for an outcome from the engagement. But one of the things I've sort of realized working within the team in Bailey Gifford is that the focus is not always, you're not always looking for a specific outcome. Not every engagement is about influencing a holding to do something. We talk about sort of the purpose of engagement in kind of three buckets, right? It can be about trying to understand the company. How are they thinking about things? What are they doing? It can be about relationship building. You know, we're long-term holders of companies. Relationships are a very core part of our investment and building that relationship over time for us is critical. And then finally, we get to influencing, because obviously part of that is using the relationships we've built up to influence where we believe it's necessary, again, for purposes of realizing the long-term potential of the company that we hold. So I think that for me was the big shift, realizing that it's about more than just trying to get a company to do something, and then understanding you know, how those three things interact, the sort of influencing, relationship building, understanding components. To what extent do you think end members, and we're thinking again specifically DC, actually understand that engagement isn't purely always about influencing change? It is about the two other points that you mentioned. To what extent do you think that's actually truly understood by end members? Because when we're speaking to end members, they want any engagement to actually lead to some fundamental change in what they're doing or how they're behaving. But it doesn't quite work like that. And, and how do you think we as asset managers can help improve end members' understanding of what we're trying to achieve? I mean, I think some of it's about communicating better, right? Helping people to understand. It's also about understanding how influence works in this instance. The influence, the mere fact that you're a shareholder in a company doesn't mean that you can necessarily influence the company, right? That ability to influence comes in part from the relationship building, from the other components, and from building a relationship of trust with the company over time. And so some of it is about us better explaining that, explaining that interaction. You know, and also I think we're also just going to have to accept that that some of what people are looking for is the outcome. Um, We can't change that necessarily, but being mindful about the fact that you kind of need the other parts for the influencing bit to happen. How do you measure engagement? I've always, yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? It's it's not easy, is it, when when you're, you know, going to meetings and things like that to necessarily say, you know, at this point we have achieved X tangible improvement. And, And how do you then go about explaining all that to clients? It must be really difficult. It is really hard. It's really hard, I think, for a few reasons. One, 
I think it's sometimes a little bit arrogant to claim I, individual investor, had this outcome. You know, even if you had a conversation with a company and something resulted from it, it's not always possible to draw a straight line from your conversation to the outcome that happened. There are a few instances. I mean, we've, we've got a few. But in many instances, you know, there are many people having conversations with the company, other shareholders, other people in the company, employees, customers, etc. So, so even making a sort of clear link to impact or outcome is challenging. I'm not sure you can necessarily measure outcomes specifically. I think you can be clear on what your engagement objectives are, what you're asking for, be methodical about how you sort of follow up on those, look for milestones, look for outcomes. But at the end of the day, it's, as I said, it's we should all be humble about what impact we claim as our own, as opposed to part of the industry. And I think that's why sort of working together as an industry on some of these big issues, like, for example, climate change or others, is some um, kind of an important part of what we're doing. It's, it's part of the system and engaging on these issues collectively that also has an influence, I think. And you typically find that managers have the same views when it comes to engaging on certain topics. I know, you know, fundamentally, we all have different views on different companies, but when it comes to actually the important engagement topics, board diversity, climate change plans, are we all fairly consistent in what we want the companies to do? Or do you find that there can be sometimes differences in, in the outcome that manager A might want compared to manager B? I think there might be differences sometimes. And I think those differences probably come from differences in investment approach and investment philosophy. And I think for some managers, a particular issue may be more important than for other managers. But I think you know, on some issues, there seem to be sort of high degree of alignment. Um, certainly climate change, I think, is something we've all managed to sort of coalesce behind. Issues of diversity, I think, are sort of increasingly gaining traction. But, you know, when it comes to a specific company and the specific things that that company should be focusing on, I think there is a degree of divergence, which is, I think, why, just getting back to sort of first principles on things, we sort of really think it's important for for actually the company to be clear on what they think the material issues are. And our preference really is not to dictate to the company what they should be focusing on unless we think they're getting it fundamentally wrong and then that will feed into our investment thesis and how we think about the company. So part of engagement, the understanding is what do they think are the material issues they should be focusing on. Yeah. Let's skip back 10 years. What did engagement look like 10 years ago? Because to me it feels as though... 10 years ago, we, we spoke so much less about engagement. It was so much less sophisticated than it is now. Is, is that how you feel as well? Do you feel like we've come a long way? I think engagement has always been important for active managers, for active holders. I think engagement has always sort of been part and parcel. I think the big changes were probably across the industry, putting more resource to it than we have in the past, in part because I think the expectations of our clients have changed. Those have increased. The expectations on investors and on companies have changed. I think there's been quite a big shift in perceptions of the role of companies in society and the role of investors in society and how we should be engaging with that. And I think the topics have evolved, right? I think a few years ago, 10 years ago, governance was something certainly everyone probably engaged on. And now, obviously, environmental issues, we've already spoken about climate, much higher on the agenda. Social issues increasingly getting some time on the agenda. So, yeah, I think it's, it's always been important. 
but the scope and scale of it has definitely increased. And perhaps it's better understood as well. It feels as though it's so much more part of everyone's parlance, whereas perhaps 10 years ago managers were talking about it, but perhaps not so much other people in the investment chain. What about in 10 years' time? Where do you think we'll be on engagement? I mean, what a big question. (laughs) It is a big question. Where will we be? I'm not sure, actually. I suspect we will... We will be getting perhaps to a better understanding of the the complexity and the nuance of engagement and broadly and to the point about, you know, end users will also, end investors will also understand the complexity, hopefully a bit better. I think we'll possibly get more effective at engagement. So despite the fact that every engagement is not about influencing, I think we'll get better at understanding where it's an important issue, how we can have impact. Yeah, and there will be new issues. There will be new things that we'll be focused on. Hopefully climate will be less of a high-profile issue, but perhaps not. And have you seen the desire to engage from the company's perspective improve over that 10 years? Yes, the topics we're engaging with them on has changed, but do you find that management are much more willing to engage now, whereas perhaps 10 years ago they might have said, well, we'll have a two-minute conversation about board diversity, but you know, the board is what the board is, whereas now they're much more willing to enter into a conversation. Absolutely. I mean, I think that companies increasingly understand, to get back to this point about expectations, I think they increasingly understand that this is a an expectation that society more broadly has of them and that investors increasingly have of them. So I think they may not like doing it all the time, but I think they definitely see this as something that they have to do and in some cases are eager to do you know increasingly are eager to tell you about the things they're doing how they're thinking about some of the the sort of issues that they believe are most important to their business and really taking a leadership role in some instances so yeah I think that's definitely happening and are you seeing a difference on a sort of regional basis so we're talking about you know companies are willing to engage you know, from my understanding, when you move out east, perhaps the willingness to engage from certain companies is has been pretty non-existent. Are they now sort of being dragged into the, dare I say, it, 21st century in terms of willing to listen to investors and engage on key subjects? Yeah, and that may be driven, interestingly, I think, maybe less by investors or international investors and more perhaps by companies from those areas who are doing things differently. And that raises the bar for others in the area as well. So certainly I think international investors have tried to set certain expectations, but I think it might be coming more from company shifts within those areas, recognizing actually that it may be a source of competitive advantage to approach these things differently. And what about engagement across different asset classes? Does engagement look different from asset class to asset class? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, the the link between the investor and the asset is much more straightforward in equities. It's a much more direct relationship and you have much more clearly defined rights in relation to that holding. When you start to get into fixed income, for example, I mean, we're very small holders of other asset classes, just to be clear. But, you know, sovereign bonds, for example, it's a different way of engagement. So there we tend to engage through industry bodies who are dedicated to convening these types of engagements. On the corporate fixed income side, obviously, you still have entry points, but your level of ability to command attention from the company is perhaps lower than as an equity holder. Just on that, you know, is there any sort of internal tension between the engagement factors from an equity? Say, for example, you own equity and debt in the same company. You know, as investors, you might have slightly different 
wants from that particular company. How can you balance that sort of engagement so that it's fair for, I suppose, our investors or your investors more generally? Is that quite a difficult thing to manage or not really? We haven't really found it difficult to manage thus far, though that said, I mean, our investment teams have very high degrees of autonomy in terms of determining their investment priorities. But we do try to coordinate internally to make sure that we're not bombarding companies with 20 different requests from sort of 20 different sets of managers and trying increasingly to make sure we kind of identify sort of two or three engagement priorities for companies. Very much still a work in progress, but mindful, of course, of the fact that, you know, you don't want to have ideally conflicting requests of companies either. But I suppose when it comes to the big issues, you're engaging on the same the same things. You want the same, you know, board diversity, sensible director pay, that type exactly of stuff. Exactly right. On the core things, I think there's high sort of levels of agreement. Though that said, I mean, we have had instances on, you know, if you think of voting as kind of the extension of engagement, we have had, you know, a few instances where different holdings and different strategies have voted differently on a resolution because they had a different view based on the investment strategy of whether or not how they wanted the issue to go. But I mean, it's an exception rather than the norm. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk about engagement in a DC context. And and I guess particularly engagement reporting, which I mean, just as an outside observer, it feels as though that has ramped up so much in recent years. I just wonder how easy it is for you as asset managers to fulfill those increasingly extensive reporting requirements whilst also kind of making sure that the reporting looks relevant to clients and is kind of meaningful to them. How are you finding that balance at the moment? Yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest, it's challenging. It is a, as you say, it is an an area where the reporting expectations are ramping up rapidly. Though I would say the challenge is perhaps less in the expectation side and the fact that it is not always aligned in terms of the expectations. So, you know, you'll have a range of clients who will expect reporting on, for example, you know, climate issues, but it might not be entirely consistent in sort of what information they want or how they want that information. In other instances, you know, you'll have clients who will have quite specific issue areas that they want information on. And I guess for us, one of the challenges, which is what we're working through at the moment, so firstly, absolutely ramping up systems processes to meet increasing client demands in this regard, very much welcome the regulation that sort of increases the standardization of the reporting that we're able to do and collaborative efforts that have sort of happened in order to support that standardization. But I think we're also trying to think about, you know, what do we do in instances where clients are asking for us us to do reporting on issues where, to be perfectly honest, you know, we don't we don't look at those issues because they're not material. We don't believe they're material for the holdings that we have. Because I think the challenge is, you know, by reporting on it, you perhaps create the impression that these are issues that you're looking at. So we're so that's one of the things we're really sort of navigating through. Though obviously, if we're you know, when, if a client asks us to report on something, it does also generate an internal thought process around, well, maybe this is a, an issue we should be taking more seriously or looking at more seriously. So it's evolving, I would say, an evolving space. Just to say, one of the other challenges, and I mean, it'd be interesting to get some other thoughts on this, but, you know, we're being increasingly being asked to do reporting and not just qualitative reporting, but quantitative reporting, you know, metrics. And many of us are reliant on third-party data providers for these metrics, climate metrics and other. 
And sometimes, you know, to your point about comparability for somebody who's looking at this at the end, you know, not all, not all of us are using exactly the same data providers. And even in things which you would think would be consistent, like, for example, scope one carbon emissions, we have a greenhouse gas protocol that defines that, different providers will give you different numbers on the same metric. And so the comparability across managers could be challenging if people are using different data providers to provide those numbers. Very, sorry, slightly technical, but no, one I of the things we do think about. Yeah, that's really important, right? I mean, what's the point in reporting if, if the end trustee can't then compare the different reports that they're receiving? And I gather that's a big challenge at the moment. Yeah. So. I mean, you know, we're all aware of and all working through, but yeah. it is something we think about. Yeah, I think the whole problem with sort of data and systems is that, that it's not that asset managers don't want to provide the information. It's just difficult to extract. Now, public equities is probably one of the more straightforward asset classes, public credit, probably in the same sort of vein. But when you start moving into private markets, that's where it's all estimations, proxies. And then if you're trying to aggregate that across different managers for one, say, default fund, it's very, very difficult because you can't simply just aggregate them all together. It's very difficult. You can see the, the rationale behind putting it all together or collecting the data, but then trying to compare. And you imagine they will try and compare one master trust with another. I don't think you can really do that because it's just the data just isn't comparable. No, big health warnings there, big health warnings. So it's the right direction, but I think we're years off being able to actually make any sensible comparisons between funds. No, it's definitely a, a fast moving and, but you know, and, as you say, it's the right direction of travel, and it's good that we're all focusing on these things, but use with caution, I would suggest. Do you think the templates that are coming out, the industry templates, are they helping? I think so. I mean, they may not be perfect, but they are at least getting us to a point where there's some agreement around what information is being asked for and being provided. And, you know, I was looking at some templates earlier today, and it really, you know, this is a climate reporting template. It really captures a lot of what we tend to get asked, but in slightly different ways by different sets of clients. And so if we can at least provide it in a standardized format, I think that's, it helps. And it may change, but at least it's getting us towards a little bit of standardization, which is useful. Yeah, I think the PLSA voting template is a great example. Exactly right. The ICSWG's sort of guidelines on how you calculate certain measures and what their expectations are across I think it was public equity and public credit portfolios definitely helps because we were getting, I don't know, three or four requests, you know, that were looking at public credit portfolios, but were very slightly different. Yeah. And you know, you happen to produce them manually, which is a real sort of, you know, the data is there, but trying to extract it is quite difficult well, and time consuming. And as you say, when you start having to do manual adjustments because you capture it in your systems in one way and then some anyway, but you know, it's all... It's all a work in progress. Fun and games. <laughs> and I suppose, I mean, this kind of brings us neatly onto what I was going to ask you next, which was about cost. And, you know, we're trying to do all these quite resource intensive exercises in the DC world, which is a very cost conscious environment. How, how do you balance those two kind of almost like contradictory pressures as engagement experts? Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, you know, engagement isn't is an integral part of our investment process. So we don't really view it as a cost line item. I don't think we even break it out as a cost line item in, in how we look at it. We see it as sort of a logical, it's part of the investment continuum and the engagement feeds back into our investment process. And I'd put voting actually in the same bucket, even though we don't always retain the voting, but we'll hopefully talk about that at some point. But 
So we see it as part of that continuum. We have, so it's not engagement resource. Our research analysts are also our engagement analysts and our investment managers also take participation engagement and do engagement. So, I mean, we see it kind of in the round. Has our resource in some of these areas increased? Absolutely. But that's in response, as I said, to growing expectations from clients and society more broadly. And I think, you know, we just need to accept that that's part of what being an investment manager is nowadays. I don't think one can, one needs to be mindful of cost, but it is, it is part of how we generate returns for clients. It's useful input, isn't it? You know, if you can understand how a company is being run or the the attitude that certain management have, that gives an indication as to what the overall business is going to be like. So it's just, a, as you say, it's actually a necessary input to be able to make a long-term investment decision because, you know, you are a long-term investor. So some of these more fundamental views are integral to trying to decide whether this company is going to be around in 10, 15 years' time. And to get back to this point around, you know, uncertainty, I mean, so we started with geopolitical events, but things happen within companies, right? So you have to be able to go back to the company at that point in time when there's been a big event and and try to understand, well, what's happening? How is the company thinking about things? Are the new people who are coming in, if it's a change of leadership, are the new people who are coming in still fundamentally aligned with the reason you thought this was a great company to begin with? You know, I, I don't think you can hold companies for, you know, the time periods we hold them if you're not building engagement into the process. That makes sense. Okay. And then I guess another interesting sort of newish element to engagement is engagement from end investors and companies which are trying to sort of harness that collective, which I think is such an interesting development. But I I wonder how that affects your approaches as investment managers, hearing those views perhaps for the first time. So Starting point, we are, you know, active, long-term, bottom-up investors. We research the companies we hold deeply, consistently on an ongoing basis. So it's not just we, we take a position and then forget about it. We continually update our understanding of the company through engagement, speak to management, have a good sense of how they're thinking about things. So our starting point is always we like to vote the shares of the company's we're invested in because we see it as a logical extension of our sort of investment in those companies. That said, obviously, there are some clients who want to vote their own shares because they have very specific views on what they want to do with those shares, and that's completely within their rights. But as you say, there is increasingly a movement for end investors to, even if they are in sort of pooled vehicles or, you know, to to express their views on how those shares are voted. I think this is one of the areas where we're still working to figure out how best we give effect to that. We are certainly respectful of the desire for end investors to be able to do that and, you know, have had conversations with a number of the infrastructure providers to see how we give effect to that in a meaningful way. I would just say, though, I think that you know, as we start to get more infrastructure providers in this space who are offering those types of services to end clients, you know, there's now a responsibility on them as well to accurately reflect the nature of the resolutions that are happening and and to make sure that the end client who's expressing a wish in that regard actually understands the issue that's being voted on. I think the danger is that you you end up with a bit of a disconnect where people are not presented with information that, that gives them the ability to to express a view that's perhaps accurately aligned 
but that said, you know, at the end of the day, it's their money that they've put in and absolutely their wishes should be at least heard. It's not possible to necessarily individually vote the individual share. Are there any other kind of new exciting developments in, in engagement that you're observing at the moment? I mean, where do we start? I mean, I don't know if they're new developments. I mean, certainly shareholder resolutions have gone, I think, from being quite a fringe thing to becoming increasingly mainstream, perhaps more in certain jurisdictions than others. You know, it's unclear whether in the US we've perhaps had peak shareholder resolution. We might be coming down now. I'm not sure. But, you know, with all of these things, it it gets back to the point we made earlier. It's about not every engagement, not every vote, not every is about affecting change. And so, you know, I think with all of these things, it's the first principles remain. You know, it's about being mindful about what you're engaging on, why you're engaging. You know, you're taking management time to have these conversations. You're taking board time to have these conversations. They need to be on the material issues. It needs to be on material issues and it needs to be in areas that are significant for the company and your long-term, in our case, long-term view on how that company is going to continue to do great things for the shareholders. When you think about engagement more generally, are you finding that for any given company, you're actually engaging with a greater number of people than you would have done 10 years ago? So 10 years ago, it might have been chief exec, CFO, and maybe someone else, whereas now it's all of the above, but then going right down actually into the the nuts and bolts of businesses. Are you finding that's changing at all? I think that's a function of, so yes, probably, but I think that's a function of the changing nature of the issues that we're engaging on. So, you know, speaking to head of operations to understand specific issues there, speaking to somebody in charge of kind of health and safety issues. And also, I think a, a greater willingness by companies to kind of offer those people up to get, enable better insights into how the company is actually being run and being managed, again, will obviously vary from company to company. And sector to sector, right? Exactly, exactly. And then I suppose just as we start to, to wrap up here, you know, the asset management community, not necessarily Bailey Gifford or Aberdeen or anyone, but how would you score the community in terms of its ability to engage with companies? Would you say we're doing a great job or there's room for improvement or we're always looking to improve? Because perhaps sometimes the perception from end members might be that we're not doing enough to stop shell, you know, drilling in the Arctic or things like that. You know, how would you score us as a community? In terms of yeah, engaging? I would say improving and looking to improve. So, you know, trying to understand levers of influence, you know, on big issues, how do we have real influence if that's the objective? And so other areas of looking to improve, how do we ensure that we continue to focus on the right kinds of issues, even when we know that sometimes that may make for uncomfortable conversations with clients who really want you to be focusing on something else instead. So getting better at managing that. And then I think just collectively, I think there's a process underway around understanding this evolving role in society and how we fulfill that and what that looks like and what being a responsible steward of clients' capital means. I think that's evolving, and I think it's a good thing to be evolving. Sean, do you have any other questions? I don't think so. No, I find that really, really fascinating. Yeah, Thank you. me too. It's been so interesting. I feel like I've learned a lot. I think often when we talk about engagement, you see it as this kind of huge nebulous thing. But actually, when you talk to someone like you who's, who understands it and lives it every day, it becomes a lot more sort of tangible. So thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me in. 
You've been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to this show on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World New Opportunities. Thank you.